Hello friends and welcome to season two of The Membership. Just a quick note here before we get started. First of all, we want to thank all of you, our listeners, for the support you showed us during season one. From the in-person comments we received at the recording of our live first episode, to all of your kind and thoughtful iTunes reviews, social media posts, and emails, the amount of support our fellow members have given us has been wonderful. It's this support that inspires us to continue our work and to want to make the podcast even better in Season 2 and beyond. And we're hoping some of you can help us. While we certainly understand that not all of our fellow members will be able to support us financially, we'd like to ask those of you who are to consider making a monthly donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash membership pod. Your donations will go toward covering the costs associated with the podcast, including website hosting fees, recording equipment, editing help, and travel costs for future interview episodes. And any amount that you can afford to donate will be a huge help, even if it's just a dollar a month. All monthly patrons at the dollar a month level or above will be invited to a private Facebook group where we'll post special updates about upcoming episodes, bonus content, and even share unedited episodes and interviews. So go to patreon.com slash membership pod to pitch in today. Hello, friends, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of The Membership, a podcast about the life and work of Wendell Berry, the Kentucky farmer, poet, novelist, essayist, activist, and thinker. My name is Jason Hardy, and I'm joined today by one of my usual fellow members. Hi, this is Tim Lawson. Uh, John Patterson, unfortunately, couldn't be with us to record tonight, but uh, rest assured that he is still very much a part of the project and uh, will be with us again soon. In episode two. In episode two, yeah. <laughs> tonight, we will be discussing The Hidden Wound, uh, Barry's book on race. And to help us with this discussion, we're thrilled to welcome another member, uh, our guest, Dr. Heather Finch. Um, Dr. Finch earned her BA at Tuskegee University and her MA and PhD at Auburn University. She is now an assistant professor of English at my alma mater, Belmont University. Uh, her research and teaching experience and interests include early American and African American literature with a specific emphasis on the fragmented narratives of pre-19th century enslaved women and freedom. Her higher education and professional experience also includes diversity and inclusion work. And you can learn more about her work at www.heathermfinch.com. Dr. Finch, welcome to the membership. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really excited to have this opportunity to talk with you all. Yeah, we're very thrilled to have you. I wonder, before we jump into talking about The Hidden Wound, if you wouldn't mind just sort of letting us know what your uh, experience with Wendell Berry had been before you came to The Hidden Wound. My experience with um, Wendell, Wendell Berry had been very limited. Um, I recently have been doing some work with a colleague on environmental justice, as well as a student on some ecology work. So through learning with them, 
I had a renewed interest in bell hooks. And through that connection there that they have with Kentucky, I had kind of begun to think about him a little bit. Um, So when I had this opportunity to read The Hidden Moon, I thought, well, it would give me a chance to think a little bit more about him and his work. Um, But before then, I just not really spent a lot of time with his work. And that's and that's great. Uh, I I think uh, we uh, we need to have more people on the podcast who are are just coming to Barry. I think it can be easy as a, uh, for us as as you know people who've been influenced by Barry and and read him a lot to just sort of fall into hero worship or just always yeah. <laughs> always sort of agreeing with with what he has to say. So uh, we we definitely welcome uh, a new perspective. Yeah, for it's sure. all it's always re- yeah it's refreshing to have somebody with a with a fresh set of eyes on something <laughs> that we might be a little too precious with. Yeah, so a um, little bit. We'll yeah. see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I, I'll go ahead and jump in here with a, a brief summary of The Hidden Wound, and we can um, jump into talking about it. The Hidden Wound is, uh, I, I call it a book-length essay that was originally published in 1970 um, and then republished with a new afterword in 1988. The Hidden Wound of the title, uh, of course, is Racism specifically the racism of white people toward black people in the wake of slavery in the South. Uh, The thrust of Barry's argument is that while slavery and racism, institutional and otherwise, have wounded and still wound black people, they have wounded and still wound white people in ways that white people have largely hidden from themselves. Uh, The essay includes highly personal passages. Barry reckons at length with the fact that his great-grandfather was a slave owner and he examines the relationship he had as a child with a black couple who worked for his grandfather. And it also includes analytical passages that connect racism to issues of economics, culture, and even ecology. And what we end up with is, uh, probably unsurprisingly, an agrarian (laughs) critique of uh, racism. Barry argues that the logic behind slavery and racism and the logic behind modern industrial capitalism are one and the same and that this logic is responsible for the disintegration of American culture, which, of course, includes our broken race relations. Um, so, Heather and Tim, um, what, what, what do you all make of that as a summary? Am I, am I leaving anything uh, <laughs> significant out? Or? Scale of one to ten. <laughs> Scale uh, of one to <laughs> ten. One to ten. No, I, I think you did. I think you did really well because I, as I read through it, and we'll talk about this, of course. I, I thought, how would I summarize this? And I thought that you did a really good job with that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's. I it's. It strikes me, or when I was reading it, it struck me as I, I had not read this previously to preparing for this episode. This was my first time, and this was much more. There was much more memoir to this than I was expecting to see. Mm-hmm. And right. that was always, and that always makes us, I think my favorite of his essays are the ones that have that element because he's the kind of, which we've talked about, I think in previous episodes about the, the documentary, how he is one who desperately doesn't want to put the focus on himself, which I think is an admirable thing for him. I mean, but he can't help but bring himself into discussing issues. And so I really love that, that as you read through his essays and you read through something like this, he's, he's sort of making his case for whatever ideas he has, but at the same time, you're getting some insight into who he is um, personally, which, which is a really valuable to me as a, as a fan of his work. 
Sure. And I didn't let you all know that that I was going to do this. But as I was sort of preparing today, um, I figured it might be good before we sort of uh, dive into discussing it to read just a little bit from the opening um, to the essay, just to sort of give our listeners who maybe haven't read, uh, haven't read the book, just a little bit of a sense of what Barry is saying in his own words about about the project. I'll just sort of pick up uh, from the from the first chapter. For whatever reasons, good or bad, I have been unwilling until now to open in myself what I have known all along to be a wound, a historical wound prepared centuries ago to come alive in me at my birth like a hereditary disease and to be augmented and deepened by my life. If I had thought it was only the black people who had suffered from the years of slavery and racism, then I could have dealt fully with the matter long ago. I could have filled myself with pity for them and would no doubt have enjoyed it a great deal and thought highly of myself. But I am sure that it is not so simple as that. If white people have suffered less obviously from racism than black people, they have nevertheless suffered greatly. The cost has been greater perhaps than we can yet know. If a white man has inflicted the wound of racism upon black men, the cost has been that he would receive the mirror image of that wound into himself. As the master or as a member of the dominant race, he has felt little compulsion to acknowledge it or speak of it. The more painful it has grown, the more deeply he has hidden it within himself. But the wound is there and it is a profound disorder, as great a damage in his mind as it is in his society. So hopefully that that just gives a little bit of a flavor of uh, the way Barry himself sets out uh, at, at the beginning of, of the book. To, to introduce what he's going for. And I would also add, I, I think it's an excellent passage to start with, and I'm going to throw in the last sentence of that chapter where yeah, he sure. says, and so maybe I am really saying only that I feel an obligation to make the attempt and that I know if I fail to make at least the attempt, I forfeit any right to hope that the world will become better than it is now. So it's kind of, I, I read that as kind of like a, yeah, sort of mission statement that I'm probably right. going to miss the mark here <laughs> at some point, right. but I'm never going to be able to live with myself if I don't try. Right. So right. Um, uh, I, I think that was yeah. uh, that, that caught me as I was reading that first chapter. So so what do you all make of, of that as sort of a way of uh, a launching off point for the for the essay? Well, I thought it was an important way to start, um, especially for someone like me coming into this relatively um, new to his work. And also thinking through what to expect in this work to see him use direct language um, like wound, um, even talking about the historical perspective there as well. I, I became really invested in trying to understand what he would share with us based on his experiences and really become a part of, as Tim stated earlier, like this memoir that will not only give me a glimpse into what it's like on a personal level to uh, grapple with these things, but to also think about how it fits in a larger system of oppression and how people understand that the workings of it all. Yeah, that's that's well said. I I came into this with I think this will come out more later <laughs> as we talk about this, mm -hmm. but in the area where where Jason and I live and like I'm, I'm a teacher myself. And so the students that I work mm -hmm. with. I was really struck at how that that language, like you said, the, the the language of the wound, about how this this hidden wound is something that, as he describes it, at least is something that I've maybe noticed over the years, but have would never have been able to put uh, put the words to it in the way that he did. And so right. I found myself like 
frankly, I found myself writing names <laughs> like in the mm-hmm. margins where I was, mm-hmm. or and also things about myself where I was just like, whoa, wait a second. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait a second. You know, um, the, the self-awareness of the essay was was really helpful mm-hmm. to me as a, as an educator and somebody who's, who's uh, working and teaching in a place where I want to be the best voice possible to help my students grow, you know? Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and just sort of uh, on a, on a preliminary level, thinking, thinking about the, the work as a whole now, just to shape, shape the conversation that follows. Uh, I wonder if we could just each give at least a sense of our individual reactions to the book. Um, did you like it? Did you not? Um, at a high level, what do you see as its overall strengths and, and weaknesses? Heather, what, we'll start with you, if you don't mind. Okay. <laughs> uh, I do not mind. So for me, my reaction was mixed. Definitely found strength in his vulnerability, his thoughtfulness. I often found myself grateful at moments that he said the things I wished he would say. And because of that, I was invested in this work with him to an extent. Um, My other mixed emotions just came from a personal experience. Just because by the time I was five years old, I had to understand race because I'm a black woman. And I thought, what a privilege to get a chance to think about it at this at this depth later in life. Um, Mm. And so for that, I, I, I just had some mixed emotions at times because I thought, you know, what if the conversation for me started, you know, after having been educated in particular ways during college or um, having had a chance to kind of grow and experience life a different way. So that was just just much more of a personal reaction because I thought, wow, you know, he had these experiences, but there were no clear, direct or, you know, as we often call the quote unquote talk that was had with him. And Mm. so I thought, you know, if I sat down and wrote through my understandings of race, it would look different. <laughs> and it would start probably about five years old when my dad had to explain some things to me. And so I thought, what a privilege that is. And and, and wondered, what do people do with that type of privilege? Yeah, that's powerful. Uh, I, in, in my sort of, I guess, bird's eye view of the book. Um, I, I also had sort of mixed reaction to it. And, uh, and, and the way that it sort of hit me was that I found myself leaving the book with a lot of little nuggets that were Mm -hmm. fascinating to me or a little, you know, where he brings in some sort of Thoreau connection or he brings in some sort of biographical note about Mm -hmm. one of these characters that really intrigued me or he, he makes a certain point. So I had all these little nuggets, but then when I zoomed out and saw it as a whole, I started to stumble a little more in what I felt about the the text because I felt like he starts out in the first couple chapters with something that's very focused and it's very, you know what he's going for. And he, he seems, you know, oh, I don't know if this is the right word, but he almost seems like, like I'm going to do this courageous. I'm going to try to do something that's really hard and I'm going to go for it. And mm-hmm. he dives right in, but in some ways it sort of dissolves or not, not dissolves, but just kind of like spreads out so thin that by the end of it, to a certain extent, I don't know if like the thread is lost. Hmm. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's if that's fair, but by, by the end of it, um, and I don't know if it's because of him. This this seems like a lot more like an improvised essay. I mean, he even says mm-hmm. about how it was written that he wrote it in a relatively short period of time and just kind of sat down and decided to plow through this. And I'm sure he spent time revising and stuff like that. But he definitely let himself just sort of follow his train of thoughts in kind right. of a liberal way, you know. Um, and so by the end of it, 
Oh, and I think maybe another factor in there is he seems to have a, despite some aspects that I'm sure we'll get into later, he seems to have a sensitivity to how he's, t- a pretty strong sensitivity to how he's talking about parts of the story. And I don't know if the way that he's approaching it then makes him sort of thin himself out as he goes instead of keeping that that really focused drive that he had at the beginning. I don't know if you guys agree with <laughs> I don't know if you, if you agree do, with that or not. I do. I can see that, yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you because I, I started thinking because when you before you get into that first chapter, I know you all remember he has that little um, well, he has a, a couple of quotes from different authors. But he starts with that autobiography of Malcolm X, the piece there where he mm-hmm. talks about the system and um, all of that. And I thought, oh, wow, he's ready to really be in conversation <laughs> about this. And then when we get a little deeper in and he goes back to Malcolm X's work again, he taken like this ecological term. Yeah. That yeah. I wasn't, About like keeping a garden or something. It's like, right. Okay. Right. <laughs> so I thought, wow, he really did. As you say, kind of thin himself out for whatever reasons. I'm not sure what happens, but I definitely noticed that as well. Yeah. <laughs> he always he always gets back on brand eventually. Right? Yes. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean I think I, I, I agree with you all. There there were definitely uh parts of it that, that I found powerful and profound and helpful. Uh you know, especially the passages like the one I read where he is showing uh Heather, like you mentioned, vulnerability and really looking at himself as a as a privileged white man and trying to figure out what that means and uh, at, at whose cost he is, he has been privileged. Um, Mm -hmm. I think those kinds of passages of moral, um, introspection, I think are, are helpful to me, uh, as a, as a white man trying to, to make sense of, of my own privilege, um, and, uh, and, and place in systems that are oppressive. And, and, you know, obviously I, I, I really love the memoir passages, some of the stories he tells about uh, Nick and Georgie, the uh, the couple who had worked for his grandfather that he knew when he was a child, when he's when he's showing rather than telling. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, in some cases, it, it it's more powerful. But uh, you know, there are definitely definitely some some parts of his argument later on that that I'm sure we'll get to that that I took issue with or at least had some questions about we 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 can get to those we can get to those later so, some of it has to do with the fact that it was published in 1970 um and right. and certainly norms and things have changed since then but um I think there are still some some issues to to look into there and I I would on that sort of on the, in that vein, as far as a starting point, even though we're 20 minutes in or whatever, like it's a starting point. Uh, he, he tells the stories of Dick and George. He also has the story of the other. And I forget the name of the other individual that is taken in the middle of the night. It's that oh, family his, story. His great grandfather's. Yeah. The, 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 yeah. His great grandfather's slave. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, mm-hmm. I feel like that's, that's, you know, definitely worth pointing out as far as he everything sort of rises out of the stories of Nick and Georgie and how mm-hmm. they affected him and taught him these certain things through his life. But then there's also that story, which is the one that he right. talks about just being like sort of casually thrown around and discussed as a as a family, but not really. It doesn't seem like a heavy opinion has been given about what happened. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like there's this story about his grandfather's slave who was mis who's just like obstinate or or whatever. And then he is in the middle of the night taken away by this guy who ends up becoming this like notorious Confederate colonel or, or, or whatever it is. And that's pretty, that's a heavy yeah. 
really heavy story that he's starting with. And so that's, mm-hmm. well, that's one yes. of the things I think it's important pointing out that he's, that's another thing that he's trying to make sense of. Seems like a cheap thing to say, cause I don't think he ever could. It's impossible, right. Right. but to try to like find himself in, or maybe find some sort of pathway through that story that makes him better understand his own family or his own place where he comes from. Cause we know that's always what he's sort of aiming for ultimately. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's dig in a little more specifically, um, and let's maybe start with maybe pulling out some passages and or or key points, key moments that that we feel like really worked, um, or that that we that we really liked. So, what do you all think worked from a rhetorical standpoint, or what stuck out what stuck out to you as profound or helpful as we consider issues of race? And obviously, feel free um, to point to particular passages passages that you like to discuss. I think one thing I wanted to point out, especially when considering what Tim just highlighted with the slave, where it, it was, it's challenging for him to make sense of this enslaved person's experience in relation to what he learned through his family. And at one yeah. in chapter six, there's that point where he talks about the Joe Lewis fight and yeah. where they eat supper and all of that. And at one point, he said something that stuck with me that was really helpful as I thought about what it's like for him to think through this and what it's like for probably a lot of white people as they try to make sense of how they are suffering as well under these systems of oppression. Um, And he says, um, it was one of those complex operations of race consciousness that a small child will comprehend with his feelings and yet perhaps never live long enough to unravel with his mind. And I just was taken aback by that because if you're being socialized in particular ways, if you are seeing models of investment in certain parts of these systems, it will be challenging to unravel all of that. I couldn't imagine having learned about something like the enslaved person and then never truly having an in-depth discussion about what all that meant. And then you carry that with you. And then his own personal experiences with Nick and Georgie. And he carries those things with him. And then he grows up and goes into the world in different ways. And then how is he ever supposed to make sense of it? That may be why his piece kind of thins out for us, because he may have been thought to himself while he was writing all of this, like, okay, what am I going to end up on? What am I going to really be able to make sense of with all of this? And as he told us in the beginning, it was going to be an attempt he felt he needed to do. But um, I could only imagine how challenging that is to try to unravel all of this and think about it, especially when there's not a direct discussion about, um, I think you all mentioned earlier about a a clear opinion about anything. It's kind of like, here are some facts. I think this is part of what I've heard in conversation, but there's never this moment where anyone says, you know, this is absolutely wrong or this is why we do this or this is something you shouldn't do or you should do. Um, And then he's left to kind of deal with all of that and try to unravel it. Yeah, that 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 passage and and all those passages around um, him, him trying to make sense of the the story that that his family told over and over about the time that this this particular slave, um, his grandfather had to to sell him. And then he was um, he was knocked out in the middle of the night and taken away by mm-hmm. the uh, the the slave. Uh, I guess it was the slave trader or whatever that they that they had sold him to. And Jenkins, um, I think was. His yeah. Name. 
and, and there's an, an awful lot of imagination that 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 Barry goes into there, thinking about his his great grandfather as he knew him and as he had heard him mm-hmm. talked about as this, uh, you know, supposedly mild mannered mm-hmm. person who, in other respect, might have been thought of as a good person, but. Uh, you know, this this moment, this story that gets passed around, uh, you know, one of the reasons he throws out for it having been passed around is that uh, it, it was a moment where the violence of the system of slavery that white people had explained away by making, you know, talking about slavery as some kind of benign paternalistic uh, institution, it was enforced by uh, and undergirded by violence, even when the slave owners themselves may not have been violent in certain cases, though in lots of cases, at least they certainly were. Uh, mm-hmm. But but it's but it's enforced by violence when they have to sell a slave away, and mm. that that became apparent to the family in that moment, and, and it was unmasked, and so you sort of have this trauma that goes through the family, and that the, the story gets passed down, but but they. To, to actually deal with it in the open and to call what happened evil would be to admit an awful lot more that uh, that they don't. And that is that is the hidden wound that he's talking about. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, I think you mentioned this, Heather, uh, at the beginning. I mean, I think just the the language of the wound um, or a sickness uh, of that 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 racism is um, thinking about racism in those terms I think is is helpful to me at, at least in so far as that it, it kind of gives it a, I guess in my mind a a spiritual dimension uh, or a right. moral dimension and it also at least gestures toward the idea that health or healing or wholeness is something that is at least possible to be to be worked for. Um, right. and, and I think that's what he's at least setting out to do. Yeah. And that, that brings me to one of my sort of favorite things that he approaches in this book to kind of springboard off that is when he pretty early on, and I'm on in my book, it's on page 16, but he, he approaches the religious approach to this and like the, the Southern Baptist church, mm-hmm. which I am sure that general, I'm, I'm not in reporting what I'm about to say, I'm not making generalizations about these churches these days, but like he makes a really powerful point just for starters that he says, but also consider this congregation of masters and slaves from the point of view of the pulpit. How facing that mixture and dependent on the white half of it for your livelihood, would you handle such a text as the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> it's, like, it's like, imagine being a slave owner and reading the Sermon on the Mount, like, right unbelievable right yeah. and so he he says oh sure it would be even practical for to teach slaves such things as resist not evil but whoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek turn to him the other also and he goes through these ones that's like oh you can totally see how they would justify something like that but then he flips it and says but what about the masters when it say when it says um he that saith i know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him so it's like you'd run into all these problems and so he gets into this description of how through the mechanisms of slavery and because the church was, you know, its pocketbook was lined with money from the slave trade and through these, these people who were fully invested in the use of slaves that sort of changed the church itself (laughs) in that all of the focus was put on all, you just have to believe, right? It's not about who you, the way you act or how you treat people. You just say that you believe, which then he even goes into like making the comparison, I think to like the people who go out and, (laughs) 
raise hell all, all weekend and then show up at church and just say like, but I believe, so forgive mm-hmm. me. And so it becomes that like sort of that's what the the Southern church was punctuated by or throughout that time because that was their way of talking it away, saying like, oh, nobody's perfect. <laughs> you know, surely I'm not mm-hmm. not perfect, but I believe. And so I will be, for, you know, I will be welcomed mm-hmm. into heaven or whatever. And he just, I like that he very immediately calls that out and calls out Southern the Southern Baptist way of thinking, or at least this Southern Baptist way of thinking as being just bogus mysticism. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I resonated with that as well. Cause I, I kind of, I kind of grew up with that kind of, uh, approach to, uh, what, what one might call the gospel, right? Uh, the idea that y- you need to believe a certain set of, of truth propositions. And, and if you do, you're, you're going to heaven and that's basically, you know, <laughs> that's basically the long and the short of it, right? Uh, John three sixteen. That's, right, that's, right. That's the only thing <laughs> right. that exists in the Bible for, is John three sixteen. And forget that that the Christian tradition has lots of other sort of resources, and you know, heaven forbid that we actually talk about uh, claims that religion might have on our lives um, in terms of in terms of how we might act. I mean, I, I I really that that was definitely one of the things I I marked down was his critique of critique of a, a kind of theology that won't ever really talk about how, how we're supposed to live in this life because it's so focused on, on the next life. Um, thought that was, and, and how that was brought into service of, you know, the slave trade and, and racism more broadly. Um, it was interesting that, and, and I have, you know, uh, I don't have the expertise to corroborate this, but, but he, he does cite a historian saying that in the early part, like the late uh, late 18th and early 19th century, there are documents from people, you know, upholding the the separation between church and state in the state of Kentucky because the clergy people were so apt to 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 talk against the slave trade. <laughs> <laughs> and then you had this development of this other other kind of religion um, that followed on along with that. Heather, how did that his his discussion of Southern religion, at least as of 1970, uh, how did that how did that strike you? I think that, of course, it was appropriate because you can't really talk about enslavement without talking about a lot of the things he mentioned, economic uh, endeavors, as well as religious roles in this. So I thought that it was courageous as well, because sometimes that's part of the hidden wounds that I can kind of gather from reading his work is that here are all these different things, all these different layers where you're considering even you going into a religious experience and still whatever it is that you believe about enslavement, particularly being pro slavery is uh, one of the things that religion says is okay based on how the scripture is rearranged in certain ways. Um, so I think for me, it was part of that vulnerability and thoughtfulness mm. for him to include all of that. Um, definitely, if we're thinking credibility wise, I think it just built his credibility even more for me that he's thought through all of the different factors that make it challenging for us to even today to continue to try to think through the racial systems, how racism plays out in people's everyday lives, um, and how we begin to think about the the various areas where you will. I, I think people still continue to say, right, 
that uh, particularly in the South, Sundays are the most segregated uh, days. Mm-hmm. I guess if we're mm-hmm. still doing 11 a.m. service, um, right. that would be that at 11 a.m. is probably the most segregated hour. And recently uh, over at Belmont, we had a speaker. He's a, a pastor. And someone asked him, like, how do we integrate our church services? Like, how does that work? And even listening to some of that discussion, I just could hear a lot of the tangles, right, Mm. that have just been, that are still there from all the things that we think back through historically, um, the church is still very tangled up in all of that. And they're still trying to figure out the impact of that as someone who was genuinely wanting to know how that how could they come together but we can see as Barry shows us that there's a a lot there right a part of this wound for everybody the suffering um, both black and white people like how can you now use this religious experience to say okay we're gonna look at what Jesus is telling us when uh, the experience has been different for some people in their religious past. And so I don't know how that works out in our present day. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But I think that it only added to his credibility to highlight that. Because I think a lot of times um, that's one of the things that people want to kind of rush over um, as they think about racism, because particularly those of us who are Christians and who are part of Christianity, we do and hope that we are trying to do it right. Um, but that critique is still something that I think um, people run away from. And for him mm-hmm. to do this in 1970 is important. That's, that's gonna, that's gonna fester that, that or just that, that thought <laughs> of, of 11, of 11 o'clock Sunday morning being the most segregated time in America these days. Right. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And, it, and it's, that's being on the subject. Yeah. It does just immediately make you think of, so what's different about then versus now in a lot of ways, right? right, right. I mean, right. the same structures are kind of in place, but we just, it's like we can, the world acts as if like, yeah, but we're being a little nicer to each other. <laughs> um, and so we're being a little nicer to each other. So that can just, that's just, that's how it's been. So we'll just stick with that. And that's how, right, right. Um, and that's what we'll expect from, from the world around us. Um, but Hey, you know, we like each other. We're being, we're being nice to each other. So I, that's something that I don't have a whole lot else to say on because it's just something that I need to wrestle with myself some more. Yeah. Um, oh, for sure. Because I mean, yeah. you look at religion at any point, I would say, um, and I'm being very broad now, but you look at religion and you look at the, the makeup of a church, so to speak, and it'll tell you a lot about the community, right? Because someone said that to me, they were like, well, remember people go to the church that's in their community, right? And so then you go, mm-hmm. that does make sense. And um, we're still reeling from segregation, right, which Mm -hmm. created these neighborhoods and communities where Mm -hmm. everyone separated um, legally in many places, particularly in the South with Jim Crow. And then um, today you look up and you go like, well, that's still very clear (laughs) because there are still neighborhoods and pockets. And then you go into the church that only shows you so much about multiple identities, whether it's race, as we're talking about right now, or social economic status, accessibility to different types of education. And so um, I think that having a discussion about religion 
really does help us think about how we are in conversation with each other and that sometimes our religious affiliations, um, whatever it may be, is oftentimes a mirror into our communities and a Mm -hmm. mirror into how those communities get that way. Um, mm-hmm. And why they're that way. And so it is something to think about. Like I said, I, I know that now a lot of times churches, uh, religious organizations, they have multiple services. Now you can go on a Saturday night, you can go on a Sunday evening. But this idea that people are still trying to figure out, well, how can we gather around uh, our religious space if we're Christian or whatever people may be? How do we kind of get ourselves in the same spaces and that was just telling for me how they try to have that conversation and no one really came up with like a really good I guess starting space because they Mm -hmm. were concerned about power dynamics right Mm -hmm. because what's set up in these experiences that we see thinking about someone like Barry is that there are still power dynamics at play so you have people someone made the description of well someone has gone to work in what people may describe as menial labor all week long, but then they can come to church on Sunday morning and be a deacon. But what happens if we then see that power dynamic shift because of the integration of the churches and they feel that a power play has happened where they can no longer be the deacon, that they don't have a safe space. And I don't know the answer to all of that, but it just kind of show how, tangled up all of it is that sometimes we wish that you know we go to church on Sunday and hey all things are solved and like you were saying earlier we're nice mm-hmm. to each other we mm-hmm. hug and hold hands when we're praying but that even in those small moments they are glimpses of hope but there's a lot to unravel there to really think through in terms of what these religious experiences tell us about ourselves and our communities yeah yeah absolutely uh, yeah definitely and and he he talks about how basically the fun, the way that America functions in dealing with change is just like, well, we'll leave it for the next generation to, to deal with it. <laughs> yeah. You know, he says, and I, I couldn't help but think about like Greta Thunberg or, uh, uh-huh. or, you know, with like climate change issues, but like with this, with the churches, it's, I, I think the same way where it's like we always instill where we're, uh, I'm thinking of a, actually a, there's a there's a song. I'm a big fan of the Avett Brothers and they have a new album that's out and they have a song called We Americans. And it makes the point in one point in the song, which is about yeah, they actually use the phrase scars of a nation. Like uh, laws may change, but we can't erase the scars of a nation. And it, it's, right. it's kind of on this this topic. And he says that we're only two lifetimes removed from slavery, mm-hmm. which we, mm-hmm. we don't say that out loud. Like, I mean, not much more than two lifetimes removed from slavery. So we're still like in, if you think about it from that sort of zoomed out perspective, we're still in the middle of it where people are just saying like, well, my parents were more used to it and I'm a little more progressive and my kids will be a little more progressive and then it'll keep going that mm-hmm. way. But that's just like the laziest long game you can possibly <laughs> imagine. You right. know, I'm trying to find the passage where he, uh, He talks about the young, he says, uh, the great moral tasks of honesty and peace and neighborliness and brotherhood in the case of the earth have been left to be taken up on the streets by the, quote, alienated youth of the 60s and 70s. So he's like giving a shout out to these sort of progressive movements that are happening in the 60s and 70s. But it's just kind of like, that's their thing. They'll take care of this. And now I point that out and and bring it up because as I think about it, it's 2019. The exact same thing is happening today. Right. right. Um, not a whole lot has changed in the last 50 years. So as, as far as that sort of model of thinking through through right. solving a problem, which I, I have to I mean, I, it's hard to change your mind. 
Like mm-hmm. the, the, I feel like the strongest people I know are people who are willing to change their mind on things. And it's even harder to change other people's <laughs> other right. people's minds. So it's just like it, yes. it really is. A, it's a staggering task yeah. um, that he, as we've sort of used before, is like courageously trying to approach at a time when wouldn't have been a terribly popular time to approach it from the way in, in the way that he's 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 approaching it, I think. Yeah, right. I also think of, and I'd like to like, is on while we're on the subject of religion, there's a there's a passage in chapter six where we get a distinction between Barry's grandfather's version of God and Nick's version of God, um, mm-hmm. which I really liked that that passage where he says he's talking about Nick here, but he says when he spoke of the Lord, he called him as my grandfather did the old master by which they meant a God of mystery, the maker of weather and seasons of abundance and dearth of growth and death, a God far more remote and far less talkative than the God of the churches. So I guess I misspoke when I said grandfather versus Nick, it's like grandfather and Nick have this sort of understanding and this sort of attitude towards an idea of God that is, affects Barry because it seems to be a sidestep from the way that the church talks about it in this sort of like, just believe and you'll be forgiven and everything will be fine. It's, 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 a, it's more of like a, I don't know what you call that an old Testament God mm-hmm. or something, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that they, that he sees that. And I thought that that, that was really interesting to me as a Barry fan and, ima- and, and seeing how that thinking speaks to all the novels that I've read in the past couple decades and in, in, in his poetry, because you can see how that has seeped into the rest of his work. Yeah. Um, I wonder if we could talk just a little bit about Nick and Georgie. I mean, I think I, I mentioned earlier, those are some of the passages that stood out as the most powerful to me when he is talking about how he interacted with, with them as, as a child. I, I'd like to read what I think is the most moving passage um, in that, and that is the the passage when uh, or where he talks about uh, his birthday party. Mm-hmm, yeah, uh, yeah, and I, I'll I'll just jump in here and and read through it. But the clearest of all my own acts of taking sides happened at a birthday party my grandfather gave for me when I must have been nine or ten years old. As I remember, she invited all the family and perhaps some of the neighbors. I issued one invitation of my own to Nick. I believe that in my eagerness to have him come and assuming that as my friend, he ought to be there, I foresaw none of the social awkwardness that I created. But I had in fact surrounded us all with the worst sort of discomfort. Nick trying to compromise between his wish to be kind to me and his embarrassment at my social misconception quit work at the time of the party and came and sat on the cellar wall behind the house. By that time, even I had become begun to see the uneasiness I had created. I had done a thing more powerful than I could have imagined at the time. I had scratched the wound of racism and all of us, our heads beclouded in the social dream that all was well, were feeling the pain. It was suddenly evident to me that Nick neither would nor could come into the house and be a member of the party. My grandmother, to her credit, allowed me to follow my instincts in dealing with the situation, and I did. I went out and spent the time of the party sitting on the cellar wall with Nick. It was obviously the only decent thing I could have done. If I had thought of it in moral terms, I would have had to see it as my duty, but I didn't. I didn't think of it in moral terms at all. I did simply what I preferred to do. If Nick had no place at my party, then I would have no place there either. My place would be where he was. 
The cellar wall became the place of a definitive enactment of our friendship, in which by the grace of a child's honesty and a man's simple-hearted generosity, we transcended our appointed roles. I like the thought of the two of us sitting out there in that sunny afternoon eating ice cream and cake with all my family and my presence in there in the house without me. I was full of a sense of loyalty and a love that clarified me to myself as nothing ever had before. It was a time I would like to live again. And, and he, he sort of goes on to talk about the, the position of a child uh, within this social social situation of, of racism, of institutionalized racism. And uh, he points to, I think, what he calls the sort of the moral resources of childhood, um, which at least for, for someone who is white, who doesn't have to, as you said, Heather, uh, experience um, that racism more viscerally early on uh, of, mm-hmm. of necessity. Uh, it, it, it's a time of, of innocence, to where he can sort of look back on the way he reacted to Nick. Uh, he couldn't help but be his friend because he was a likable man. Um, and he was a generous man and he taught him things and he let him follow him around uh, while he was working, even though it was probably more of a nuisance than anything for him to do so. Right. Uh, but but there's this, this, this moral memory of how he had reacted uh, or how he had uh, developed this relationship with Nick that he is sort of saying that he's looking back to as he's trying to make sense of race as an adult. What what did you all make of that and of his portrayal of Nick and, and Georgie as well um, on the whole? On that story, I would just, the only really little thing I would add, and this is probably, you know, uh, you know Dr. Finch, we've talked about how on our of our three hosts one of us is like a fiction person and this is all accidental but like one's a fiction person one's a poetry person and one's an essay person uh for, <laughs> for various work and for me i'm the fiction person like what really hits me and i just sit there and i and like as he was reading that again i immediately got the exact same image in my head which is a little uh, you know a young wendell berry with his <laughs> crew cut or whatever he would have had at the time <laughs> just like sitting on this cellar wall kind of kicking his legs and just totally innocently yeah. eating cake and ice cream and sitting by his best friend and i don't even right. imagine saying anything i just imagine them sitting there i imagine him just being like 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 it says in the passages where i preferred to be like mm-hmm. well right. this, part, this party sucks I'm going, I'm, going, I'm going to sit with nick like my my closest confidant and so I, I think of that and then i think of the deep the deep pain that nick must have been feeling right. in that moment gosh yeah that I, awkwardness of like not knowing what to do and yeah and, right. and, and you know, just being like probably worried about like sure you know uh, worried about are people going to blame quote blame this on me that he's missing his birthday party because right. he wants to right. be which is which just breaks my heart to imagine that he would have that thought but from later on in the book i I, I sort of lean towards the idea that both of them are to a certain extent sitting there content and, and Nick is enjoying uh, the little things of, 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 of sitting there with a break in the middle of the day and enjoying the sunshine and is able to appreciate this little bit of time. But I still just like my heart, my heart breaks when I think of him sitting there and, and not being it with a little, I don't know how old, how old was he? What does it say? It's like, what birthday 10, was? Yeah. It's like nine or 10. Like and imagine like he's not going to sort of bring up this topic to him. He's just going to be like, well, this is what's right. going to happen. So it's sort of like that sort of fictional scene in my head or not fictional scene. This, 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 uh, this narrative scene in my head, just, it weighed really heavily on me as I was, as I was reading it. Yeah. I think I agree with you on thinking about Nick's experience with this because he's navigating that tension that he probably always had to navigate, um, Mm -hmm. in terms of figuring out 
how to tell whatever line was presented to him at any given moment. And here was a moment where he felt probably pulled or felt the tension from all of it, but was able to make the best decision for him because he knew that this could go either way because Barry would probably want to know where he is anyway. He knew that the space of the birthday party itself was not a space created for him. Um, even though Barry doesn't get that, he knows that very well. And so trying to navigate that tension, because there are times when Barry talks about that silence, the tension, the anxiety um, with all of this. And so by this time, Nick probably has had plenty of experience figuring out how to make the best decision for himself, but to also know how to do that with the family too. So I do think about him and his inner, what are his inner thoughts? What is he thinking as he's making all these multiple decisions, no telling how many times a day or in, in any given week to ensure that, you know, he doesn't make a decision that could possibly, you know, cost him his job, cost him his life, whatever, you know, could occur for him. And so he probably had a lot of experience with it. I see him as a very, strong man with um few words in the moments where he knows that's mm-hmm. not gonna be you know probably the best decision and and I ache for that too to to spend your life not truly being able to make the decisions that speak your truth and to be able to speak to what you honestly feel about those that you love and those who are around you um, and it's just hard to grasp. It's hard to grasp that. And I know for Barry, it would be hard for him to grasp because he doesn't know at that young age how to make sense of all of it. Um, and probably even now in his older age, probably still doesn't know how to um, make sense of what it would be like to be Nick mm-hmm. and what Nick thought and what he felt. But to just kind of have been in that space with him, he knew was the, I think, um, I'm trying to make sure I use the word, uh, the decent thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had this an undeniable, just sort of innocent, magnetic pull towards Nick because he had, I think right. he had like a genuine love for him, just like those <laughs> when he uh, he tells that story about the Joe Lewis fights, which Dr. Vinci referred to earlier, but like that he would he could have sat at home mm-hmm. <laughs> and listened to those and had right. dinner with his family, but he was like, no, no, <laughs> I'm gonna go with Nick on this little pilgrimage that he always does, which is to go to the next yeah. just so that he just because he can, he's gonna right. go over to the next house over and he's going to listen to it there and and Barry would go over there and his argument I guess like little Wendell would be like well there's another little boy over there and we'll go and we'll play but he would he was going there because he had, just had this magnetic attraction to him um in yeah. general and a, and a magnetic attraction that he also shared I think with Georgie um of right. course and so which we haven't we haven't talked about Georgie a whole lot yet either but yeah what what did yeah. y'all make of Barry's portrayal and sort of what he does to make sense of uh, uh Georgie and her influence on his life well, I mean, he one one little thing that definitely jumps out to me is he he quickly points out that Aunt Fanny from A Place on Earth was uh-huh. a direct influence of of of, of Georgie. Yeah, and so I think that um, for any character to be and he and he acknowledges like the differences between them, but for any ca- character to just be a direct pull from somebody, um, 
I can sort of, uh, with with the mind of a fledgling fiction writer in my own head, like I can imagine that feeling of like Georgie being the super special person to him that he had to like, I, I, I'm going to use her as a character somewhere, and so it's got to be done right. right you know, right. I've got to, mm-hmm. I've got to do it well and do her justice. And so he, and, and a place on earth is one of my favorite of his books. Um, so that 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 jumped out to me initially, but she seemed to have a, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll I'm interested to hear what you all say about this, but. Georgie's influence on him, like while Nick's was more work ethic and attitude and the way that mm-hmm. he saw and approached the world, Georgie's effect on him was that was his storytelling right. rock or whatever. Yeah. That, that was the person who sort of informed his storytelling a lot because of the way that she preached right, <laughs> and the way that right. she told these right. these stories. I, I love how he points out that she's she had three obsessions and it was uh it was it was, it was God. Africa and Germany. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's the three the three things that she loved to talk about. I think that's what or or was it was it hell no, it was hell, Africa and Germany mm-hmm. were the three things that she like could just kind of go off on, but whatever. But I I would like to hear what you all think about that, just as far as like the storytelling influence on on Barry from uh from Aunt Georgie. That's exactly what I thought about with her. Um she was the one with the stories, he's the one that kind of got his inspiration about storytelling from her. And I just, what sticks out to me most is once Nick dies and she leaves Mm. in a sense that kind of left a mark on him. Um, Mm. And I don't know how to describe that, but it stuck out to me most because I don't think he really anticipated probably even Nick's death or what would happen to Georgie. So with all of that, he, had I guess he hadn't really thought about her influence on his life particularly until that moment um Mm -hmm. and once he realized she was about to leave and how much he she was a part he says like um I think this is chapter eight yeah he says um and all at once I realized that Aunt Georgie was going to leave I hadn't expected it she was deeply involved in my history and my affections She'd been there what seemed to me a long, long time. Perhaps because of those conversations we used to have about taking care of Nick when he got old, I suppose such permanent arrangements were made as a matter of course. And I just think that we get to see the major impact she has on him then because they made these plans, they talked through these things, and she had become a, a, a portion of his life that probably maybe he thinks at this moment might have meant something even more than Nick. I don't know how to interpret that in that moment, Hmm. but she is truly foundational for him and his storytelling is impacted by the work that she does with him, the relationship they have. If that, if I can use that word, um, the connection that they have together. Yeah, that's great. Well, I want to make sure we leave some space to uh, maybe dive into some of the some of the the portions of the of the book that maybe we had questions about or or maybe we had criticisms of. So yeah, I just want to open it up. Uh, what what do y'all think are there? What are, what are some portions that that maybe you have um, have some criticisms of? I my initial reaction to this is that I. And this, this is sort of I, I have an answer to that. And then also in that answer, something that I really did like about. Sure, the, sure. About the extended essay. But it's at, at one point um, this is this was kind of a standout uh, quote for me. But uh, in sec, this is in section nine. He says, 
I'm a good deal more grieved by what I'm afraid will be racism of the future than I am about that of the past. Um, later, he says, I have the strongest doubts at the usefulness of a guilty conscience or about the usefulness of a guilty conscience as a motivation. And I, I thought like that was I, I, I loved that he went there and I thought he was going to go deeper hmm. into the I've been talking about the past. I've been talking about the past. Now let's talk about okay. the future, you know, because I, I couldn't help but have flashes of MAGA in my head when I hmm. or right. like in the, in the sort of present day issues that are coming up where he's it was fascinating to me that in 1970 he was saying. I'm trying to make sense of the past, but just, hey, FYI, I'm a little more concerned about what racism is going to look like in the distant future than what it's looked like in the past, because it seems to be an acknowledgement that it's not going anywhere. Um, And yet I don't think that thread was fully. I don't I don't I don't think he went as far as he could have as far as um, the sort of future scope or like looking looking towards the future uh, with within this book. So that, that's that's a I, I guess you call it a critique. But I mean, I, I know that in at this time, I mean, this is I, I trust Barry enough to know that this book was probably the best he could do at the time. You know, like it was <laughs> it was the best thinking of its time or whatever. Sure. But I also mm-hmm. feel like he could have gone farther as far as the mm-hmm. not just like, oh, that's what was happening back then. Or that's why I felt that way. Or that's why people did that rather than saying like in more direct terms a sort of uh, a future focused approach to it towards the end, which he, he touches on, of course, but I just wanted more. Sure. I agree. I think that I was concerned about some missed opportunities, as you were pointing out, to really be in conversation with what a future could look like, especially if he was concerned about it at this time period. But like you said, it's still 1970. When he's pulling all this together, um, a lot of people have said some things. I wondered if he would have, you know, engaged with certain writings. I don't know why, but when I was reading through all this, I guess when I first saw that first quote from Malcolm X, I got super excited because I thought, oh, my gosh, like, who all is he going to engage with? You know, the thinkers of this time, um, black people are thinking through this at this time. And Mm -hmm. as he tries to think through his personal experience and I don't get a chance to see that happening in this work. Um, Even as I mentioned earlier, he takes a different direction with Malcolm X there when he talks about, you know, gardening. And I was feeling like, okay, there's so many things from the autobiography of Malcolm X that he could have (laughs) um, engaged with in in all of his his conversations, right? And you could probably pick any different moment to think about what Malcolm X would have probably said in conversation with him and his thoughts. Um, and he does mention Dr. King and I don't know, I guess I just expected something else. Um, yeah. and I don't even know what something else was. I know, um, someone like James Baldwin is in conversation during this time period. I don't know how accessible James Baldwin and his thoughts would have been to, um, Barry and if he would have engaged in particular ways with, uh, what James Vaughn is saying at this time. So I, I'm just curious because yeah. it seems like they are, of course, coming for the, from their own perspectives, but similarly very concerned about racism, very sure. concerned about what it meant for that time period that they were in, but also what it was going to mean to the future of America. And so um, I just would want to know why he does not engage with some of the other works that maybe he had access to at that time when he written this piece. 
Yeah, I I had the I had the same reaction because he he there's a long section where he he makes a uh, he makes a big deal out of the fact that we need to find cultural resources or right. language to help us figure out what it would mean for um, black people and white people to talk about uh, the hidden wound, right? And then he talks about the Odyssey and Tolstoy and and Huck <laughs> Finn. Uh, which, which is fine, you know, (laughs) like like the passages he talks about are fine, but I'm like, yeah, but like there are black writers. Hang hang on for a second while I talk about a few white people. (laughs) You know what some of my favorite white people have to say about this? Right, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Uh, but I, I'd, I'd be interested, Heather, uh, you know, you mentioned James Baldwin is, is there, are there particular works and I I don't mean to put you on the spot, but, but are there, are there particular works or ideas of his that you think our listeners might be interested in looking at as a way to sort of pick up on this thread that, that Barry leaves kind of hanging there? Um, probably my obvious choice would be Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. Um, he considers, um, a part, normally if you get that text, you'll probably have the letter from his nephew, um, the letter to his nephew, which is, um, it precedes what you may have read. I don't know, or what people may be more familiar with is Ta-Nehisi Coates between the world and me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's similar to Coates because it's, you know, it's his predecessor to this idea of talking to a young person about what it means to be who they are in America when we think in the context of racism. But Baldwin is very clear with these discussions. Like, he's being interviewed by people um, about his feelings about what's happening in America with race, um, even what he sees as what's going to have to happen for both Black and white people as there's work to be done. He he leaves questions for white people to think about and to answer. And so I'm even thinking since Baldwin is being interviewed on television about this stuff, like, does he not engage with TV in particular ways? Is he not seeing the conversations that Baldwin is having, um, which are very distinct and direct? And I would think he would have been inspired by that, right, to think through who he is as a white man in this uh, discussion. So I, I just thought immediately of that in some of the conversations. And if people want to um, even Google, they can look up some of, I think one of them was a PBS interview that's yeah. done with Baldwin, um, where he talks about this. He's even, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Baldwin is often in like court spaces, maybe the UN, um, a lot of academic spaces where mm-hmm. he's um, talking about this stuff. And so I thought, you know, like I said earlier, seeing early on that quote from Malcolm X, I thought, oh, wow, he's really going to engage with, I mean, even Langston Hughes or mm-hmm. Angela yeah. Davis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he many. is so many people that he could have thought about them in terms of what they have to offer. And just historically, some of the things that already happened in areas like Birmingham, Alabama, which were major events that you could see the violence that racism Mm. how it violently impacts communities and people and i thought like there are a lot of sermons and um court uh interviews testimonies um (laughs) just i'm trying to even think i'm so the thing about me is i'm not a historian i couldn't make it i always thought i would be but i can't because i'm not (laughs) but i think that even fanny lou hamer probably had been NBC News had her up for a quick second, you know, 
uh, Lyndon Johnson did not like it, so they took her off quickly. But she was on NBC News for like that's a right. little bit, and she described like her experience of just trying to register to vote. And so that's why I was just like, I thought he would have taken an approach to incorporate those voices, but I don't know where he is in 1970. I don't know where what space he's in as he's trying to think through all of this and unravel all of this in his adult mind. Yeah. I think that is an excellent, like excellent observation, and it's and it, there's there's a a gaping void in this essay of talk of Dr. King and of, of these figures. He mentions them once. Yeah, yeah, once. Yeah, like, yeah. once. This is 1970. It's right. not like it's 1959 or something. It's one right. time. Right. And so, but also like I, gosh. And so as you were describing, like surely he had seen James Baldwin on TV. I I was like sort of like chuckling under my breath because I was like, oh. He famously doesn't have a TV. Because <laughs> Wendell Berry is this sort of like Luddite. So I was like, I, suddenly I thought of, I recently bought a copy of an essay that was written much later, but it was called Why I uh, Why I Don't Own a Computer. Is that the Why title? I'm Not Going to Buy why, a Computer. Why I'm Not Going to Buy a Computer. Really? And he says, he says yeah. I don't have a TV and I will never have. And there, there, we, we will get to that. And there are some issues with that <laughs> essay. Right. But yeah, at the same yeah. time, I'm like, he's the guy, like the equivalent today of the person who like you talk about some like, crazy thing that just broke on Twitter and they're like, I don't have social media. Yeah, I don't have social media. Come on. Come on. Like, okay, I'll fill you in. Like, he was the 1970 version of that where he he probably had people at the university where he's working be like, do you hear Baldwin on talking to the UN or whatever? And he's like, oh, I guess I'll have to check that out. But, oh, wait. YouTube doesn't exist because yeah. it's 1970. I, don't know. I, wonder, I wonder how much he was missing out. Yeah. I think he was a little more aware than he lets on, though. You know, uh, well, that's almost worse, though, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is worse. It's like yeah, he's no, aware, but then he didn't mention it. But, yeah. but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and I don't know. I even think of like you know cultural forms to help you know bridge the divide is not a good. <laughs> It's not a good way to say it, but uh, to to help uh, white people talk to black people and figure out what the uh, figure out how to talk through the 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 institutional problem and the wound that is racism. Um, I mean, I think of the work of the Highlander Center. I mean, nonviolence itself is a nonviolent protest itself is a social form, is a cultural form, right? Right. Uh, like uh, so. So there's. There's a lot of uh, a lot of resources out there that he's not tapping into. Um, right. he, he does at least a, a tiny bit to his credit. Like we were sort of poking fun, I think rightly, that he's pulling on <laughs> like all these white writers mm-hmm. for his for his ideas. But he does point out. He says like he it's almost his limitations. It's like as far as in my influences, I've he says that he's noticed that the 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 influences that he has within white culture that have that have affected him have been exiles and renegades. Mm-hmm. Like he points that out, like the, the ones that I, I find myself genuinely drawn to are the ones that are, have literally been like excommunicated or eccentrics because the white culture does not, it, you know, in these, these, through these previous decades or whatever has just tended not to produce popular writers or whatever that are progressive on these topics. So he talks about T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound who, ugh. um, but Thoreau and Whitman and Faulkner and William Carlos Williams. And it's like mm-hmm. all these white dudes who have these like interesting ideas that he brings up throughout. He does point out, however, that these are people who tended to be like on the outskirts, but it's just such a swing and a miss mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. that, that he fails to sure to bring in the, the other side of that. But yeah. yeah. 
Well, I wanted to bring up here the um, kind of the the structural argument of the the latter half of the book, which is, um, and it's something that I, I, I kind of like you, Tim. I'm I'm kind of torn about it, um, and I'm interested to hear what you all made of it. His argument, like I said in at the beginning, where he's really making a, a, an agrarian critique of racism, and he. Uh, essentially, I, and, and we're we're already over an hour here, so I'll I'll just kind of do my best to summarize the argument. Basically, that uh, racism exists because uh, white people, the Europeans who colonized the Americas, wanted to own the land, but thought themselves above. Uh, the menial work of actually caring for the land and and doing the work on the land to produce, you know, the crops, etc. Et, et and and so they enslaved black people from Africa and and brought them over to do the work and then invented racism out of this idea that um, there were certain kinds of work that were beneath them. And the slaves that they were having to do that that were having to do the work, that's why they were inferior. They were doing the work that it is beneath the white people. Um, and, and, and he goes on from there to make arguments about the fact that th- this is part of the hidden wound um, in in assigning this work to to the slaves and then later to uh, to the black underclass under Jim Crow. White people have sort of. Uh, given up a, a necessary part of what it means to be a human in the world. Um, they've given up the experience of working um, either on the land or in sort of caring, uh, caring professions and only focused on the idea of sort of owning land or owning the means of production and figuring out how to make them profitable. And also as a result of this, uh, Barry, you know, makes the argument that black people develop um, what he calls a more authentic and a more wise or a wiser culture um, that sort of helps them deal with, you know, the daily grind of, of doing all of this manual work of caring for the land. Um, and that this is something as well that uh, white people shut themselves off from because they are shutting themselves off from this kind of work. I think he, um, uses, he uses the phrase urban nomads. Right. White people right. like turn themselves into these right. urban, urban nomads right. and then let other people yeah. sort of like have the... Yeah, and, and yeah, in the in the later times, yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. So I, I, there there are things that I I think are are probably true about about that that characterization and, and the connection of of economics and even um, ecology because if white people are distancing themselves from the land, um, they're going to make decisions about the land that are going to be harmful to the land. Uh, they, they don't know how to care for the land or, or, or live within creation. Um, so there are things I like about this, but, but I also, that there are times when, um, when he's talking about Nick in particular in this regard, and he says that, and he even, he even recognizes that it's a perilous thing for him to say, but he he says that Nick is in some ways freer than his grandfather was uh, because his grandfather had to worry about, you know, the, the profitability about, of the land, yeah. whereas Nick right. 
you know, he was poor, certainly, but he was given a place to live. He had stability and he didn't have to worry about, you know, um, the, the, the profit making piece. Of, yeah. Of it was the like land. grandfather's worrying about profits while Nick is just like looking forward to his next fox hunt or something right, like right. that it was the way that yeah. he characterizes it. Which right. is, Oh, so the, there are things I worry about there. <laughs> like yeah. he's he's walking up to a ledge uh, that is that is, uh, and maybe he's stepping over the ledge. I don't know. Uh, what 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 do you all make? And and we'll start with you, Heather. What do you, what do you make of the sort of structural argument and 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 what that says about white culture and black culture and and things like right. that? I agree that um, to an extent, it's clear that. I think marginalized communities have kind of understood the importance of the land um, mm. beyond capitalism or any kind of economic driven forces with it. Um, we often continue to hear uh, indigenous communities remind us of the purpose of the land, um, mm. how the land is a part of creation and their connection with it is definitely beyond ownership. And that part of the wound is that they have, Within white culture, based on what I'm seeing from Barry, they've created viewpoint of creation in the land in ways that shouldn't have. And I always think of, and I always wonder if I'm right or not. I need to read Crevacroix again, but I think mm. it's in his a letter to the uh, from American Farmer or something. Part of me thinks I remember him like giving a warning long time ago when he went to one of the plantations and he saw the work that the enslaved people were doing. And then he saw the slave masters or enslavers. He saw them kind of in the house and not really able to understand what's happening on their plantations. They had gotten kind of, I guess, comfortable in a certain way as the plantations were. The, the enslaved people were working on the land and mm. are very knowledgeable right, of agriculture and what needs to happen. And he started asking them questions and they were like, couldn't really answer and he was like oh this is a danger because yeah. you probably mm-hmm. should be knowing like what's going on with the <laughs> and what happens when all of a sudden this free labor is no longer available to you um and then we see the civil war and all this kind of um other history that i'm jumping right over occurs and i think about that still that part of that wound is there's this disconnect between some of the work that occurs. And earlier we were talking about how, you know, enslavement, they were able to create kind of like this definition of who should be doing work um, in connection with race and then creating the separation. Um, And sometimes we can throw in poverty there to think about the ways in which we think of who should be doing certain jobs now. And I just think, you know, that is a major force, but it's also not that simple because if it was that simple of us going back to the land, and saying, okay, how are we treating it? How are we understanding it? What are some of the immediate impacts? I don't know. Um, I think that uh, continues to be a major thing that we're thinking about now with climate change, right? As they try to remind people who are truly invested in capitalism, and oftentimes that shows you they're very invested in the um, racism that fuels uh, capitalism. And you go like, how are we going to, like, Think about the land only in this because mm-hmm. it's evolved in such mm-hmm. a way that it's uh, a lot of industry is just really. And I don't know if y'all have been paying attention to the 1619 project with the New York mm-hmm. Times, but mm-hmm. as you know, they're showing like all the current connections that all kind of rose out of this. So if you think about sugar and what's happening now, if you think about um, industry and what's happening now, 
and how a lot of this is just all tangled and tied up in what's been established in enslavement. Um, and then as you try to work through racism with that, will returning to the land and thinking about environmental justice really be uh, one of the ways we can do it? I definitely think it's one of the ways that we can think about it, but I'm just not sure if that's going to be a clear answer as we're trying to figure out what to do. Yeah. I, 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 I definitely, yeah, I definitely tr- track with that. And that's just, it's easy to, I think once you get to the end of this book, it's easy to start sort of like rolling it out and it's easy to start rolling it out into these other issues like climate change and sort of the other, these other issues that I think he, he doesn't touch on because maybe he wasn't, he wasn't necessarily aware of right. um, at the time, but that was also, I feared that that was one of the, in some ways, at least what I just said, not just what you just said, but was is almost one of the weaknesses of this because by the end of it, it sort of fizzles out where you lose that sort of rock hard sort of aim of how do we fix fix these these wrongs mm-hmm. or whatever. But I, and maybe it and I, fizzles out has a very negative connotation, but maybe the uh, a better way of saying is that by the end of it, he becomes sort of overwhelmed by the scope of everything, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, like <laughs> yeah. overwhelmed by the scope of, if I really want to talk about this, this book's going to be 1400 pages long. It's going to be as long as yeah, Tolstoy, right? Or it's going to be, right. it's going to be, but, but, but he was writing it over a, you know, Thanksgiving break or whatever it was. Like I forget what he says. Right, right. Like yeah, he just kind of yeah. like plows through this idea. But yeah. I, I definitely, I, I, I bumped on the sort of Nick is better off than we are sort of thing because he's the people like him have learned this other way of seeing things, which is like we've said, sort of true, but at the same time it had this slight taste of like, and this is sort of a, a maybe an insensitive way of saying it, but like, man, I wish I'd been a slave <laughs> so that I could have had that. I know you're right. I understand what you're saying. There, I totally understand what you're saying. Where, where he says like, uh, he he brings up Thoreau again. He's like, you know, Thoreau taught us that it's it's being a happy person is about understanding your minimums and doing as much as you can with as little. So wisdom might be thought of as the art of minimums or or whatever. And it's like, in some ways, that's like a very sort of like making the most out of a really crappy situation, right. you know, right. um, which I think in some ways opposes his original mission, which is to like address the issue as opposed to saying like. Right. Here's how it's better than you think, which I know he's not saying it like this, but that's just like I started to get those. Right. Well, he's aware of that. Like he 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 brings that up. He's like, no, I know what you're going to say. Like, it's easy for (laughs) easy for you to say that. You know, he he ends several chapters like and I know, I know, I know, I know. know. (laughs) But at the same time, he he never really dissolves that that tension. Uh, And 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 deals with that so yeah i I still have some worry about that i i don't want to keep don't want to keep harping on my my criticisms did either of you have some other other topics you wanted to talk about in terms of of criticisms of the of the book um no i think that with your criticism you really kind of gave me an opportunity to talk about just some of the things with him um kind of not following through because sure. he does a really good job of, I think you all were talking about that tension, right? Thinking through it. And a lot of times he would answer me because in my mind I would go, okay, of course you can say that. And then he'd come back later and be like, but this is my truth. <laughs> this is how right, I right. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Just want to make sure you understood, Barry. Thank you for like reading my mind. 
Um, but uh, I just, I, and also, like I said, I'm trying to think contextually about the time period and also sure. understanding my time period and the ways in which I would want him to respond and to see him with that. But I think that he just doesn't get a chance to think through a lot of it. And um, that's what I would have loved to have seen. And I know it would have been a large piece of work for him to think through it as much as possible and follow through with some of these thoughts to understand how challenging it is to, because we'll never know if Nick is actually quote unquote freer, right? Mm -hmm. We'll never get a chance to see that because he doesn't get um, an equitable opportunity to live his life um, without the constraints of systems of oppression like racism. Um, but I just wanted to see a little bit more follow through with those thoughts there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that, yeah. And I, I, we should, we haven't mentioned much, but like acknowledging the existence of the afterward that he wrote, I feel like the existence of the afterward is him acknowledging the fact that like, all right, let me take another stab at this. Let me add a little bit more. And and he probably got to a point where maybe these, some of these subjects were sort of rolling out into some of his other essays and things that he was writing that he, he stopped sort of adding on to this hidden wound didn't become his like leaves of grass of racism in America where he was just (laughs) adding to and adding to and adding to, I don't know, but I, I, I think that at least at least to acknowledge that it he seemed to be aware of this a little bit that he he knows he could have given it right. given it more attention and he tried to and and because um, I I think ultimately we we ended on our sort of criticisms or we're, we're wrapping up with our, our, our criticisms but I I certainly feel personally better off certainly better off having read this. But, um, yes, of course. It's 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 a, it's a it's it's brought up some questions in my head that I haven't known to ask myself. It's it's told me stories that will, in sort of a edifying way, like these stories about Nick and Georgie will stick with me and will and will teach me in a way that I think would please Barry. That 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 sort of like wisdom and way of thinking would be would be passed along, and and I value that. Yeah, um, a, a good bit. I think early on, I. I in this conversation, I said that this book felt like a series of really valuable nuggets mm-hmm. of, of, of wisdom. Uh, but when you zoom out, it's sort of like harder to wrestle with the overall meaning. I think mm-hmm. that'll always be the case. I don't think it's fair to, to, to put on Barry that he should have like, you know, buttoned it up <laughs> at the end and be like, <laughs> right, right. You know, da, 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 and that is why we do that. You know, that is, that's the solution. So I'm, I, I, I certainly think that the, the the reading of this has driven me towards a further search personally for more understanding because yeah. I so my family is from Northeast Ohio, which was a sort of like notably anti-slavery and like Underground Railroad hub. That's where most of my family is is, is centered. But like we they like to cling to that, or you know you like to say that. But at the same time, I know that sharecroppers and these, these sort of like after effects of the mechanisms of slavery was something that my family Mm -hmm. was directly involved with and had sharecroppers coming through Mm -hmm. and, and working in a way that is this sort of pseudo version where they're not being paid a whole lot or they're doing the same kind of work they were doing before. So like I, not to the extent of Barry, but I know that my family has a connection of some kind to this that I, I feel much, much, much more compelled to, call my aunts and uncles and call my grandparents and, and get answers and try to start pointing myself towards uh, figuring out how to tell yourself the truth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And that's, that's sort of where I hoped we could end up here is um, what, what are 
you know, obviously now our, our race relations in America are, are still not healthy in, in many ways. I think that's probably right. an understatement. Uh, right. But 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 I wonder if we could talk just briefly about what what, if any, wisdom might we be able to draw from the hidden wound today? And I think, Tim, what what you said, especially as a as a white person having to sort of look critically at our at our own privilege. That is what I think I will take take from this, uh, for sure. The posture of criticism of yourself, your family, your history in um, and your your complicitness in in these these sort of structures, for sure. Heather, what about you? What, do you think that the hidden wound is, is something that might help your your students today sort of think through racism in America? Absolutely. I am fortunate to be able to teach a, a various, I guess, kind of wide ranging course on social justice. And we are currently thinking by centering African-American voices. But in this class, I have white students who stopped and asked me the question of, why don't we sit down and ask our family about like their connection to all of this? And so I never had a group like be so blunt about that. Um, so I'm <laughs> grateful that I got a chance to read this and talk through with you all about it because it's another example for them to read, to think through how they have these questions about themselves as white Americans they have questions about themselves in the context of their families. Um, even one student said he just asked his dad, like, what were you doing in 1965? And <laughs> what does that mean to us? And <laughs> his dad was very um, candid with him. Um, and he said he was grateful for that because he didn't need to hear any kind of lies or, you know, make anything seem any kind of way, because if we're truly going to, continue to make any kind of movement, um, we're all going to have to sit with those questions, right? And and as I mentioned earlier, when we first started, I think that oftentimes uh, Black people don't have the luxury to not have to think mm-hmm. about it because it mm-hmm. becomes so life or death for us. And so to see this opportunity, this model that Barry has for those who are wondering how do they have these conversations, I know my students will be able to see a piece like this and think through someone who tried to ask themselves those questions and figure things out. And so I'm grateful to have this part of my list when I hand them that because I'm not an expert on whiteness. Um, so I don't often know how to work with those who are committed to what they're going to do today. Um, but I do try to keep a list of authors that they can read, you know, whether it's fiction or um, any kind of theory so that they can understand that there are people who have thought through this and who are committed to thinking about what impacts oppression, this system of oppression, when we think about racism, has on everybody. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and as a, me as well, as a, as a teacher of young people, like, I, I resonate with that a lot. And then also with his, I think I will definitely take away his notions of these issues and how he acknowledges the sort of wisdom of youth or whatever, and also mm-hmm. the traps mm-hmm. that young people can follow into. So as a, a, a high school teacher, a public school, high school teacher in the South, um, it, yeah. it, it, it energizes me to better understand my students in sort of an empathetic, empathetic way. Um, I, there's a, there's a line in the book where he says that, uh, that certain mechanisms make young people 
certain young people will make themselves comfortable among the grown-ups lies hmm. and i love that line and that like sort of haunt that line sort of you know sticks with me and haunts me that's one of those where i sort of thought of specific people who you you meet people who are sort of stuck in the teeth of this thing of this of this lie and they have no understanding of why they're there right uh, mm-hmm. it's just that they have sort of let themselves grow comfortable within the lies that they're surrounded by and so it just helps me better better understand them that like he he even quotes that you know that eventually we're supposed to put away childish things mm-hmm. um that's and, that's that saint paul right <laughs> yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah um uh he he doesn't under those demands here's the quote he says as has been off often enough pointed out he doesn't understand those demands necessarily become a man in any respectable sense of the word he is altogether likely to become a perfect snot useless to his fellows and destructive to his community and his land. <laughs> uh, but like that, that, that idea of just like, yeah, just better understanding people who are, who are younger who and who are, have the opportunity to approach things from a more innocent basis, like Wendell sitting on that cellar wall, kicking his legs that mm-hmm. um, they, they deserve our, our, our attention if we're expecting to have that sort of future focus that we talked about earlier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. Well, uh, is there anything else about the hidden wound that uh, that we haven't covered? Uh, I mean, that there obviously is a lot that we haven't covered. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> anything else that's that's top of mind for you all as we uh, as we close here? Not for me, I don't think. I, th- I mean, there I, we 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 can't talk about everything, right? But I feel like no. I feel yeah. like this was a. I really will. I think I will always value this conversation with, with the two of you, because I think this book was really became quickly important for me and maybe even more important because of the problems I had with it, you know, <laughs> right, um, right. That, like the cha- the challenges that it faced that, that it brought up were almost, uh, it, those were important to me because I was like, I was, I, I found value in noticing the sort of downfalls of, of the attempt, but knowing that um, not personally as if I'm like on the same par as him, but that it's like an opportunity to sort of take what he's done here and then try to keep moving the ball down the field. Right. And I can move the ball forward. Right. So I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's anything else on my mind. I, I would agree. I think the value for me in the conversation we've had and just for you all, give me an opportunity to encounter Barry's work this way. Um, increasingly the questions that I receive are about, Who's supposed to be doing what? (laughs) Um, And in in many cases, I'm always directing people back to their individual behaviors um, and their investment in human rights. And so to be able to point to certain texts to help them better understand a more personal approach um, with some of the memoir-like pieces of this work really gives me a chance to continue to help those students um, and whoever I'm coming in contact with as they go like, hey, who's supposed to be doing this work? If we're trying to figure out how to make this world a better place for everybody and racism, as we mentioned earlier, right, that we are far from the type of work that needs to be done with this. And so it gives me a chance with this conversation I've had with you all and with reading Barry's work, it gives me a chance to continue to have a place or a site for me to direct people um, to have larger discussions as they try to figure out who's supposed to be doing what, 
how are they supposed to be doing it? Um, and what avenues can they follow? So I'm excited to continue to talk about this book with other people. Um, and some of the, the, the gems, I think you were mentioning earlier, some of those nuggets, right. That come out of it, that what can we do with what others are writing about? And so I'd love to see, um, I may even think about like creating a class where like he's in conversation with a whole bunch of other people really complicating this whole idea of race, but, um, I'm excited to continue to see how this impacts um, the way I teach, the way I make connections with others, and the way I'm able to help people think through that really tough question of what kind of humans are we going to be? That's yeah, great. you've got an awesome opportunity there in what you're describing to bring in those voices that you identified as absent, like yeah. and saying, OK, he, he, he it was a swing and a miss with some of these that he didn't approach. So, like, let's do it. Let's, let's do it here. Let's, <laughs> right. What do you that's a really valuable thing for students to think about is like, what do you think Barry would say to James Baldwin or what do you right. think he would say to yeah, these people, you know, these different characters? That's that's uh, sounds like a good uh, essay assignment. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I would certainly uh, take or audit that class. That sounds that sounds <laughs> yeah, great. Amen. Yeah. yeah. I will keep you updated. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Well, Heather, thank you so much for uh, for joining us here on the membership. Uh, I, I don't think we could have had this conversation without you. I really appreciate the, the perspective you brought. Thank you all so much for just being gracious and open. Um, I really do appreciate you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks, friends, for listening to Season 2, Episode 1 of The Membership. The excerpts read in this episode can be found in The Hidden Wound, which was written by Wendell Berry and is published by Counterpoint Press. In Season 2, our goal is to release a new episode every other week. In Episode 2, you'll hear John Pattison's interview with David Klein, the Amish author, writer, and editor. And then, in episode three, we'll pick back up with Barry's fiction, discussing two short stories, A Half Pint of Old Darling and The Lost Bet, both of which can be found in the collection That Distant Land. If you like what you heard, please take a few minutes to rate and review us on iTunes. This helps others find our podcast. And if you'd like to chip in financially to help with the work of the membership, visit patreon.com slash membershippod. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at the handle MembershipPod, or find us online at MembershipPod.com. The Membership is a proud member of the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. To discover other great podcasts, visit RabbitRoom.com slash podcasts.